Hi, I'm Josie. My daughter turns five today. I'm also an Ohio State Highway Patrol trooper. When you move over and slow down, you're making sure I can get home to celebrate with my daughter. When you see flashing lights, remember, they're not just roadside workers. Thank you for moving over and slowing down. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show, your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations. Hey everyone, I'm Megan Kelly. Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show. Today, we've got Barry Weiss. So excited. She has spoken to precious few people since she resigned uh, from the New York Times in an act of defiance against their small-mindedness, their unwillingness to open up the op-ed pages and the Times in general to divergent points of view. Um, she's on the center left, or at least was, I'm going to ask her where she is right now, and really just wanted debate. And as you know, that newspaper isn't interested in that. And so we'll get an inside look at the New York Times from somebody who hasn't really spoken much about this at all. Very excited for that. So stand by for one second, because before we get to her, let's talk about protection for you in your online activities. Don't you worry about this. This is one of those things that sort of hangs over me like, "Mm, am I doing all I can to protect myself? Well, if you don't have Norton 360 with LifeLock, you're not. This year, you may be feeling excited about the new device you got maybe over the holidays, or your focus could be on your New Year's resolutions, but you can check both boxes. Make sure your new devices and your resolutions include one critical thing, protection. With hackers looking to steal your information and one out of every five Americans having been affected by identity theft, you may not be as private and secure as you think. And that's why Norton 360 with LifeLock makes it easy to help keep you safe with device security that will help block hackers from devices. Also a VPN for online privacy and LifeLock identity theft protection to help you keep what's yours, only yours. No one can prevent all cybercrime or identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses, but Norton 360 with LifeLock will help you cheers to a cyber-safe new year. Wouldn't you like to have that to celebrate? Just peace of mind on the internet. Think of that. You might get canceled, but as you go down, you'll have nobody looking over your shoulder online watching what you're saying. Oh, wait, (laughs) you have to worry about Jack looking at you. Uh, sorry, I digress. In any event, save 25% or more off your first year at Norton.com slash MK if you go there right now, okay? Norton.com slash MK to save 25% off and secure your online world. Check it out. And now, Barry Weiss, journalist, author of How to Fight Anti-Semitism, and editor, thankfully, yay, of a new Substack publication. <laughs> What an honor to have you here. I'm excited for this conversation. I'm so excited to be here, Megan. I was teasing this uh, interview the other day, and I was saying, you walked out of the New York Times like Daenerys Targaryen walked out of that hut where the men were trying to abuse her, setting it on fire and walking out gorgeous. She was nude. I think you had your clothes on when you left the Times. and uh, But you were you were unmasked I was, in a different I was very way. sweaty, much sweatier, <laughs> less uh, less coiffed hair for sure by that point. But it, it was one of those moments. And I felt it. Listen, having worked 
places before, which shall remain nameless, where I have definitely been the target of bullies, um, intolerant bullies. I was like, oh, my God, I love this woman. And I, of course, had been your fan prior to that on, on a lot of the stuff you've been doing. You've been making great headlines. But let's just start with that feeling. The day you wrote your scathing resignation letter, which we'll get to, and left, you know, what I'm sure started off as your dream job, editing, you know, these op-eds at the Times and bringing in new and diverse voices to, you know, the paper of record. It, when you wrote that and you sent it and then you walked out, how did that feel? Well, to be clear, I, I didn't walk out of the building because we were already in COVID. <laughs> so I guess I didn't have the, you know, the cinematic moment like you COVID know, you ruins everything bombshell with, with Margot Robbie packing up her her box and everyone cheers. Um, you know, it was it was less cinematic, less glamorous and, and more, frankly, a long time coming. I'd been working on that letter um, since, you know, for a good few weeks, really, since the Tom Cotton debacle, which which I'm sure we'll get into. Um, mm -hmm. I wish I could tell you, Megan, that I was as strong as the mother of dragons and that the feeling that I had was um, the way that a lot of people perceived it, uh, which is, you know, my favorite tweet was that Barry Weiss walked out of the New York Times with the flamethrower on her back. Um, <laughs> and I certainly aspire to be that kind of person. Um, but oftentimes I, you know, I'm the kind of person that when I wanted to run the New York City Marathon, I told it, like 100 people about it so that I would be obligated to do it. And mm -hmm. I'm a little bit like that in general. Like I sometimes take a leap um, before I'm even, before I've even sort of emotionally understood what it will mean. Meaning I knew it was the right thing to leave. I knew that I did not come into journalism to tell a half version of the truth or to become a half version of myself. I knew that there were things for me, and I was always really clear about this, that were way more important than professional prestige or being popular. Um, and it wasn't a question in my mind that the time had come for me to leave. Um, but but it was it was only sort of in the weeks and months following that I had the sort of emotional satisfaction that maybe you had while reading it. Um, mm -hmm. The feeling I had while writing it was 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 tremendous clarity, um, but also fear, um, because when you leap out of a place like the New York Times and, you know, for better or worse, it's still the kind of place, at least in the cohorts, and the places where I live and eat and hang out that, you know, it inspires a kind of like, you know, people are impressed when you say that you mm -hmm. work there. Um, and and so I, I would be lying if I didn't say that I, I had a lot of fear in in what would come next for me. Yeah, of course, that's that's totally natural. But I I think you did the world such a service in making that letter public. You know, it's I I, I can relate a little bit on, um, you know, we pulled our kids. Um, our boys have been pulled. Our daughter's going to go soon. Uh, she's going to finish out the school year. Mm -hmm. And it's not to say we didn't love our schools. We we did love our schools a lot and the people there, but they went so hard left. They were no longer a place for us. And we absolutely could have pulled them and said nothing about it, you know, yeah. and I think which is what m most parents who would pull their kids in this situation would do for understandable reasons. And the reason I m went public with it in, a, in an interview with Glenn Lowry and Coleman Hughes was I, I didn't want to be, I didn't want to make it only good for me. You know, I didn't want to just save yeah. us. I wanted to help save other parents who are stuck there right now. And I feel like that's what you did. You you helped 
the the reporters who are still at the Times, who are on your side, I realize they're all liberal, but they're not all wokesters who don't want to hear anybody's uh, opposing view. And yes. just the media in general deserves to be shamed for doing more and more of this. One of the reasons I think that this letter um, and my departure was so resonant with people is because it's not just, as you just said, it's not just about the New York Times. The New York Times is is a very important part of the story because we need a free press. We need a press that holds up the mirror to society rather than just a shard so that people can make rational decisions about where to live and where to work and where to invest their money um, and who to vote for. But really, this is a story about, and I think this is perhaps the most undercovered story of our era, in part because the people that would cover it are implicated in it. And that is the story of, of ideological succession. It's the story of the way that institutions that sure leaned left, had a liberal bias, but fundamentally um, were sort of speaking the truth when they claim to speak for most Americans, um, have shifted radically. And that's the story, not just of the press. It's the story of our universities. It's the story, as you know, increasingly of our um, K through 12 educational system. Um, it's the story of our publishing houses. It's the story of Hollywood. And increasingly, it's the story of corporate America. And that is a story that I wanted to tell. And it was impossible to tell it when I remained in a place that was enthralled to it, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Well, and the thing is, you're so articulate. You you have that thing that got you jobs at the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, which is, you know, this beautiful way with the written word that helps the rest of us feel somewhat soothed when we hear somebody who's got that talent write it. And just just to frame it for the audience, um, the resignation letter was dated July 14th, 2020. It was about a month after the whole Tom Cotton debacle, which we will get into, where he wrote this op-ed about the the how we should control the unrest in the streets. And then the editor who allowed that op-ed was forced to resign three days later. So you, you write, in part, um, a new consensus has emerged in the press, but perhaps especially at this paper, that truth isn't a process of collective discovery, but an orthodoxy already known to an enlightened few whose job it is to inform everyone else. Twitter's not on the masthead of the New York Times, but Twitter has become its ultimate editor. As the ethics and mores of that platform have become those of the paper, the paper itself has increasingly become a kind of performance space. Stories are chosen and told in a way to satisfy the narrowest of audiences. And it goes on from there. I love that I, because it is a performance space, right? It's, it, it, the purpose has changed from enlightenment to performance in a way. Mm -hmm. I mean, a really strong example of this that I kind of couldn't believe it until I saw it. Um, there was a story that briefly went viral um, on Twitter. I think it was two weeks ago, but I've sort of lost track of time in, in COVID. Um, and it was about the, the sin of the cultural appropriation of tiki bars. This was a story oh, that was on the cover of the business section of the New York Times in a year in which by lots of estimates, one in five small American businesses will be closed by the end of this pandemic. And here I am supposed to care about, you know, about tiki, tour, about, uh, tiki <sighs> bars. I mean, it sort of boggles the mind. And, and just the assumptions, right, uh, that are, it, so it's, 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 mo it's, you can see it in the way certain stories are told. 
Um, and certainly the riots of this summer were, were a signal example of that. But you also see it in the stories that are not told, the ones that are overlooked and the ones that are emphasized. And mm-hmm. I just think that um, there's that's obvious now to the average reader. That was obvious to me going back. I was there for three years. That was obvious to me about you know pretty pretty early on. Um, but it became um, markedly worse in the, in the time that I was there. Um, and. Yeah. I mean, there's so much to say, but but I'll let you lead me because mm-hmm. I, I want to know what you're most curious about. Sure, sure. I mean, well, I, I, I know you were you worked at the journal. So just so our, so our audience knows, you went to Columbia. You um, worked for a while at Tablet, which is really good. Tablet is an online magazine um, that focuses on, the on magazine in the country. Honestly, I it's really a, do. It's a, the writing is so good. It focuses on Jewish news, politics, and culture, but just really American news, politics, and culture. And man, do they have a good ability to find good writers. Um, I, in fact, the one that you tweeted out, I want to talk to you about because it really was beautifully done not long ago. But anyway, so you're, you're a senior editor at Tablet in 2011. Then you move on to the journal, op-ed editor. And then you you go for, like Brett Stevens, kind of, you go from the Wall Street Journal to the New York Times because post-Trump's election, to their credit, they decided to try to broaden the ideological range of their opinion staff, right? Like, we missed it. We didn't see it coming. We don't understand half the country. Let's let's try to get people with. And, and of course, you are about as right as they were willing to go. You're, you're a liberal, but, but you're center left. Well, I, I think what's so strange about this is, in a way, I've sort of um, lived out the, the, the tribalization in the country, meaning at the Wall Street Journal, I was always the squish. I was always the leftmost flank of a conservative editorial page. Um, mm-hmm. And it's funny. I, I think I think I might like that position more ultimately now that I've experienced both. But when I yes. left the journal and went to the Times, all of a sudden, you know, I'd been used to being sort of the leftmost flank. And all of a sudden I was considered something like, you know, a fascist. Which, if you know me and know anything about my life and my views, is kind of hilarious. Um, but that was already the atmosphere um, when I walked in the door, and that was well before I had weighed in on on Me Too and and on lots of other um, hot button issues. So right, you know, on Me Too in a way that was defensive of some of its more prominent targets, which I do want to talk to you about too. So I I just have to tell you, I can relate to this so much. I used to say that. I felt like the Rachel Maddow of Fox News and the Sean Hannity of NBC. <laughs> yes, exactly. And, um, right? You know, I think, I guess the one comfort in that is I feel like I still am, you know, in the kind of, you know, I'm center right on certain positions, center left on others. I feel like I, you know, I'm friends with people who voted for Trump. I'm friends with people who voted for Biden. I think I'm where a lot of Americans are. It's just that the news media has become so polarized that you watch one, you know, you watch one network if you think the other half of America is evil and you watch the other if you think the opposite, um, mm-hmm. you know, again, and, and that sort of goes back to one of the reasons I wanted to leave. Like, I didn't want to be part, not to sound too like high minded about it, but I, but I honestly felt like a lot of what we were doing was contributing and stoking the polarization of the country. Mm-hmm. And right. Hashtag part of the problem. And I'm <laughs> and I'm I'm honestly really, really worried about that. And that's not why I became a journalist. And and I wanted, 
and still want um, to be part of projects that are helping us understand one another. The question remains of, you know, if there's a way to monetize that kind of project, but, but that's definitely what I'm most interested in doing. Now, I think there were two lanes for you there. One, the one you just pointed out, this is not good for society and it's, it's contrary to my life's mission as a journalist and, and what, I, what I believe is important about being a journalist. And the second lane is the internal bullying that you suffered. Um, again, like, let's like looking in the mirror, Barry. Um, but there was bullying there. And, and you weren't like I mentioned Brett Stevens, I will say to the Times' credit, he he's an actual conservative that they did hire, but he's been, you know, he's been excoriated there too. But how did that manifest? Was that a slow burn where you just realized, oh, wow, they don't like me here? Or were there a couple of incidents where it became clear? I'll start with the general and then get to the specific. It is directly tied to the I, to the narrowing of what political scientists call the Overton window, the spectrum of what is considered an acceptable opinion or perspective. As that narrowed, um, and for those of us who didn't sort of go along with every aspect of the woke orthodoxy, and there were constantly new th- items being added to that list, um, you became something like a heretic or or traitorous or um, accused of sort of not being on the right side of history. And I'm really not exaggerating there. So, you know, for anyone who's listening, who's ever been in a deeply religious environment knows, you know, if you're in a atmosphere of people that, you know, are true believers, um, there's not a lot of room for skepticism. And going back to, I, I, I've been in this place before in my life, you know, you mentioned Columbia. And when I was a student at Columbia University, um, I took a lot of classes in the Middle East Studies Department, which is sort of um, famously radical, especially on the issue of Israel. And, you know, in lots of classrooms in the Middle East Studies Department at Columbia, there was an assumption, you know, to, you know, in keeping with the Soviet propaganda line that Zionism was racism. Well, if that was the case, and if Zionism was racism, then to be a Zionist was to be a racist. And everyone knows in American society how we should treat racists. And so, you know, there was kind of like, I had already experienced that sort of thing before. It was just shocking for me to experience it at the place that prides itself on being the paper of record, that prides itself on telling the truth, excuse me, the truth, even when it's inconvenient, um, and in holding up a mirror to society. So from the moment I walked in, um, I would say like, it was a little mean girlsy. Like I was never, I was never going to be invited to sit at the cool kids table. Um, I had already, you know, published not a lot, but enough that was out there um, that if you Googled me, um, you could find, you know, like hit pieces about my college activism that had been written in The Intercept. So I would say that I was sort of um, walking in and people were a little suspicious of me. Um, But it got more and more heated, I would say, as the um, Trump administration sort of sat in, people started to... um, really like not lose their minds about it. I might be overstating it, but saw anything that was um, not pushing the line of orange man evil and everything orange man touches is bad as being something like traitorous. And so, um, you know, it was strange because this is the kind of environment where you know, inclusion and diversity are the watchwords and bullying is wrong, but like bullying the right people is not just okay there. It's kind of like a virtue. Um, Mm -hmm. And 
you know, one of the ways this played out was this just really, really insidious double standard. You know, if you had the right politics and you had the right perspective, you could basically, you'd be unscrutinized and you could act totally unprofessionally, for example, on Twitter, and nothing would happen to you. And yet, and this was one of the early instances that I experienced, I think it was in maybe like February 2018, I tweeted a video of an Olympic figure skater whose name was Mirai Nagasu. Um, Parents, uh, she's a Japanese American, parents were born in Japan, she was born here, and I tweeted a line from Hamilton that was, immigrants, they get the job done. Um, and there was an absolute, and obviously, not obviously, but for those who have known my work, I am extremely pro-immigrant. Um, and I meant the tweet as nothing other than than praise of this incredible feat. She, it was a video of her hitting a triple axel, I think. But there was an absolute outcry in the Slack channels at the New York Times. They compared my tweet to Japanese internment camps. Um, (laughs) Seriously, there were town hall meetings that were held um, (sighs) about the tweet. I had to meet with the heads of like the communications department. And ultimately, I, you know, I was on uh, real time with Bill Maher like a week later and I found a way, you know, per their request to apologize for the tweet. And then if you kind of take a look at the things that other people at the New York Times regularly tweet, not just about other Americans, but about their own colleagues, you know, I've been called a liar by my colleagues. I've been subtweeted by a coworker sitting two desks away, accusing me of, you know, bigotry and racism, and nothing ever happened to those people. So, um, you know, it's, it's hard to run a, a newsroom where there's one set of rules for one people and another set of rules for another. And, and by the way, we should point out to our audience, you are diverse. You are diverse. That doesn't save you. <laughs> I don't even know what diverse means anymore. I mean, because well, I mean, I don't know. You're LGBT. Yeah. Well, I, I, I'm L. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. You're L. And you're, you're a Jewish woman who's engaged to another woman. I don't know. I think some of us outside of that category would think it would save you or it would help you with the New York Times. Nope. You has to be full submission to their orthodoxy or you're out. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the, that's the most concise way of saying it. I could I could gild the lily there, but I won't. <laughs> so did you ever have like in-person arguments with people or was it more just the frosty feeling? It wasn't just a feeling. I mean, this was, I mean, by the end, you know, there were Slack channels with, this was following the Tom Cotton op-ed. There were Slack channels with more than 2,000 co-employees of the New York Times, including every member of the masthead of the paper going up to the very top. And people were saying, you know, if this company is going to be an inclusive and diverse company, how, you know, we need to talk about how Barry Weiss still works here. Or people were putting next to my name. They put guillotine emojis next to the name of my, the boss who hired me, who was pushed out of the paper, James Bennett. Um, I don't think anyone was punished or fired for any, I know that they weren't fired for any of those things. Um, So it was very explicit by the end. Um, But there were certain things like there was a, you know, there was another editor who, you know, 
my editor, one of my editors was sort of uh, checking a piece by me. And she said, is Barry Weiss writing about the Jews again? Now, like, oh. now of course, you know, he laughed that off because what else are you going to do? But like, just imagine that being said about any other minority group. It would be yep. unfathomable. I, I could go on, but it's it's really like the point is really that this um, closure, this closure and narrowing of what is acceptable inevitably leads to the bullying of people that don't comply. And that mm-hmm. is the story at the New York Times, but it's the story all over the place. And I, my inbox is like an incredible microcosm of this. And I'm actually thinking about doing a series called The Closet. And I'm not talking about, obviously, the closet, you know, with regards to people's sexual orientation or gender identity. I'm talking about people like normal liberals, not, you know, not MAGA supporters, not cons- not even conservatives, although, of course, there are conservatives among among this group, but normal liberals working inside publishing houses, inside um, the legacy media, um, teaching at elite private schools, people working in law firms. I even, I've even heard from doctors who are closeting their most basic and I think commonsensical political views mm-hmm. um, because they know that if they are out about them, um, that they, they can see what awaits them. Um, because yep. we've had enough examples of it. We've seen people, you know, lose their jobs for bad tweets. We've seen adults cheer on as teenagers, you know, essentially act like Stasi against other teenagers. Um, you know, canceling has become a normal part of American life. Um, and you don't need that many examples of it to get the message. Um, and, and the bigger effect, the sort of downstream effects of those very public examples are extremely, extremely real. And one of the things that's really alarming to me is that, you know, we live in a democracy. Our, you know, our First Amendment is most important. It's, you know, the right to speech, the right to a free press. And yet people are double thinking in our democracy. And, you know, it's not like we, we the threat is being, you know, shipped off to the gulag as it was in the mm-hmm. Soviet Union. And yet people are increasingly acting as if that is the case. And I think that's, you know, I think that is just such an important and huge story and we, that, that really deserves more attention than it's gotten. More with Barry in just one second. But first, I know what's going to make you happy. Getting your best credit score. The average American has 97 points that they can add to their credit score. 97. But you have no idea how to get it, do you? Scoremaster knows how. It's not credit repair. It's credit science. And it will help you get your points super fast. It's this new credit technology. And they're the only ones who have it in this way. They're going to reinvent your whole credit score experience, which, let's face it, is unpleasant for most people. No gimmicks. No loopholes. In fact, they make it very easy for you to get even just the average of 61 points in 21 days or less, right? So you can get 97 points or the average person gets 61 in less than three weeks. And getting your plus points fast can save you a fortune before you apply for a loan or a credit card or you refi your home and you buy a car. Scoremaster is also great for business owners who want to use their credit score to finance their business. And it's great for mortgage brokers who need an edge and who love getting their clients better deals. Scoremaster is great for everyone, frankly. Who couldn't use a boost on their credit score? It saves you money. And it will even show you the score consequences of spending too much or identity theft. Think about that. No one else does what we do. There was a very funny 
uh, episode of that Suddenly Susan with Brooke Shields one time where she was overspending and her credit card company would like stop the sale and she'd have to call to see what the deal was. And they'd be like, Susan, you can't afford this. You spent too much last month. So Scoremaster's not exactly doing that, but they will just provide you information so you can you can understand the consequences of spending too much while they boost your credit. You can enroll in minutes and see how many points you can add to your credit score and how fast. Visit scoremaster.com slash MK. That's scoremaster.com slash MK. One of those cases where you say, and the kids are acting, acting like Stasi against the, the others and, and they get highlighted. I think you're referring, among others, sadly, to the case of Mimi Groves, who was a girl down in Leesburg, Virginia, who, when she was, I think, 15 and had just gotten her learner's permit, tweeted out, or didn't she? She, she didn't tweet out. She direct messaged somebody a four second video of her singing along, singing a verse from, I guess, a, a rap song, where she mm-hmm. said, I can drive N word. She sang, she sang, I can drive N word. Mm-hmm. Uh, sent it as a direct message, you know, stupid move, 15 year old celebrating her permit in a way that was not appropriate, which she would be the first to admit. And that person showed it to another student at the school um, who was a, he, he was a minority. He was black and he saved it. He, he videotaped it and he saved it and mm-hmm. he lay in wait for Mimi and he decided to spring it on her, not when she found herself in a racial controversy or where, you know, she did something that evidenced a prejudice against people of color, he sprung it on her when she had gotten admitted, I think, to the University of Tennessee as a cheerleader. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was, a, you know, one of those top notch cheerleaders, like actual kick ass athletes and uh, was about to go off to college and said something over the summer in support of Black Lives Matter. She did. She was horrified by George Floyd, the video. She tweeted in support of Black Lives Matter. And that is when he decided to ruin her life and make it public, to go public with it, which he knew very well, given the climate, what would happen to her. And the New York Times uh, finally wrote a story about this, which celebrated him, painted him as a hero for hurting her. She she got kicked off the cheer squad and the university promptly gave her one of the um, very nice daughter you have there. Be ashamed something happened to her here at our college. You might want to really consider whether you want to send her, you know, Mimi's parents, all of which they t- they got proof of. And Mimi wasn't allowed to go there. She couldn't go to college and her life was ruined over a four second stupid moment when she was 15. And mm-hmm. the New York Times published that article gleefully and had exactly the wrong hero in it. I, I, I just it was so irresponsible and it was so cruel what they did. And not to mention what the kid did, which shouldn't be celebrated because it's going to encourage more kids to turn state's evidence on one another. Mm-hmm. But that's them, right? That's the same paper that was asking, oh, she's not writing about the Jews again, is she? <laughs> I mean, that's those are the people who are lecturing us on morality and how we need to be better people. Yeah. I mean, I just think it's th- there's dozens of examples like that. That was one that really broke through um, and, and I'm glad it blo- broke through. But, you know, we're living in just a merciless age. And I don't think that people have reckoned with what it means. Like we talk a lot about the internet and Twitter and social, but it's like, do people understand that we're living in an era in which you cannot make a mistake? You cannot make a mistake. And everything is captured for all eternity. And there's just so little incentive. Um, You know, I, I, I spent a lot of time talking to teenagers and college students who you know, 
want to get into public life or want to be journalists or want to be op-ed writers or maybe want to run for office one day. And these kids rightly see no incentive to do so. And if they do want to, um, why would they ever uh, take any kind of strong opinion? Why would they stand up for something unpopular? Mm-hmm. That's exactly it. That's what you wrote in your in your in your resignation letter, saying there are. It's very clear to the young people there are rules. One, speak your mind at your own peril. Two, never risk commissioning a story that goes against the narrative. Three, never believe an editor or publisher who urges you to go against the grain. Oh, I mean, don't you think it's true? I do, and it scares me because, as I always say, the bullies have really won when when they're when they're in your head, changing your behavior. Right? Like, it's never good to be bullied. But it's really scary when the bullies turn you into a bully of yourself, right? And that's what's happening. I want to read you two two really short things that summarize the moment I think we're in with regard to this. Mm-hmm. Um, I get emails every single day from people like this young journalist who wrote me, I never thought I'd practice the kind of self-censorship I now do when pitching editors, but I have no power to do otherwise. For woke, skeptical young writers, banishment and rejection awaits you if you attempt to depart even in minor ways from the sacred ideology. I used to live in China, where I worked as a foreign correspondent, and these dynamics are eerily similar to aspects of the Cultural Revolution. Mm. I had a student from Harvard write me the other day from his personal email because he was too scared to write it from his college email. To explain, and he wrote to me and explained that he self-censors even when he's talking to some of his best friends for fear of word getting around, um, and that he, you know, projects what he thinks professors want to hear in his papers and tries to write um, answers and write papers with the perspective that mirrors their worldview rather than what he thinks are the best arguments. Like they sound like missives, like smuggled out of a totalitarian society. I think one. One thing I'm hoping, uh, given that, you know, the era of Trump, hopefully with him out of the picture and the clownishness and the, you know, just the grossness of of a lot of what that meant, that we will be able to see this other threat with more clarity. Um, maybe that's Pollyanna-ish, but, but that's what I'm hoping for. You know, <laughs> I, I, I hope you're right. I mean, I certainly hope that there's there are more people coming over to our side, but they're they're so smart the way these sort of radical leftists have seized control of so many aspects of our culture and our debate because the less people speak up and offer differing views the more people who haven't said anything yet think they're in the minority and that they can't speak up you know that one of the reasons i've been so vocal about this and i try to talk about the third rail stuff you know trans race sexism and misogyny um so bluntly is because I think it's American. <laughs> I think it's uniquely American. I've never been one to be ginger with my language, but I I think people need to be reminded it's not East Germany. It's the United States of America. You're allowed to talk about issues. Don't be shamed out of having the opinions that you have. Debate is the answer. Silence is the devil. And don't listen to the people who tell you your views are not okay and they're not shared because the truth is I forget the 75 million people who voted for Trump. You're you're of the left. The most I think most people on the left are with us. They're they're just freaking terrified. Yeah, and you know what? They're right to be terrified to some extent because 
how much does how much time and effort does it cost for me, you know, to go on Twitter and call someone an ism? Takes two yeah. seconds and nothing. Nothing. You don't need a mass group of people to to sort of ruin your reputation and take away your career and hurt your family. You just need a dedicated group of like 25 people because I'm watching it happen to a friend right now. Mm. And that scares people. And it's not just, you know, the fact that you could get, you know, kicked off of Twitter for saying, you know, for misgendering someone. Meantime, the Ayatollah Khomeini, you know, talks about genociding the Jews, but okay. Um, no problem. So it's not that. It's that it's not that far-fetched. And a lot of people in Silicon Valley have been talking about this over the past two weeks to imagine, you know, this sort of um, censoriousness coming, you know, to your email or to the browser that you use, or maybe even to the bank. And so I think what's going on right now is not just people protecting themselves for whatever the mores are in the current moment, they're projecting out to what they could be a year or two years or three years from now. Mm. And the other thing that I'm, but, but there's this sort of paradox because people are silencing themselves and closeting themselves in order to protect themselves. And maybe they will in the short term. What they don't realize is that in doing that, they're sacrificing not just themselves in the long term, but the whole thing that makes this country exceptional. Mm-hmm. Like speak out now. If, if, you, if you get one thing from this conversation um, or one thing from my letter, my story, like speak out now because it's not just about you and your mortgage or, you know, your professional advancement. It's about our ability to protect the things that have made this country, you know, the last best hope on earth. That's what's at stake here. And, and, and I really hope people understand that. You, you've written so beautifully about this. I mean, it's been a pleasure preparing for this interview because I got to read so much Barry Weiss. And one of the things you pointed out in the same vein is what we're losing is liberal America. And that is not used in the political sense, not conservative versus liberal, but liberal ideals. I just want to read this to the audience because there's so much. It's so hard to choose which ones I wanted to read because they're all so beautiful. Oh, no, there's amazing. All right. So you're writing about how we've lost that. America used to be liberal. And you write not liberal in the narrow partisan sense, but liberal in the most capacious and distinctly American sense of the word. The belief that everyone is equal because everyone is created in the image of God. The belief in the sacredness of the individual over the group or the tribe. The belief that the rule of law and equality under that law is the foundation of a free society. The belief that due process and the presumption of innocence are good and that mob violence is bad. The belief that pluralism is a source of our strength, that tolerance is a reason for pride, and that liberty of thought, faith, and speech are the bedrocks of democracy. The liberal worldview was one that recognized that there were things, indeed the most important things in life, that were located outside of the realm of politics, friendships, art, music, family, love. This was a world in which Antonin Scalia and Ruth Bader Ginsburg could be close friends because, as Scalia once said, some things are more important than votes. Oh, you don't even realize you've lost it until mm-hmm. it's been chipped away and chipped away. And you have to ask yourself, why do I feel so bad? 
Why do I feel so sad? I know something's gone that I once loved. And, and th- this is it. This is what's happening. It's not about, I mean, listen, it's a little bit about critical race theory and that stuff, which needs to be stopped in my view, but it's much bigger than that. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that there, I grew up, you know, I write in my book that I, I feel like I grew up on a holiday from history and, and maybe other people listening felt that way too. That certain, that it's like my, my friend likes to joke that Americans are people that think history happens to other people. Like it, it seemed like we were inoculated from some of the worst things that were going on um, in other t- times, of course, and in other places. And I think what we've learned over the past few years really, really clearly is that the veneer of civilization and the things that we maybe assumed were as natural as gravity, like the things you just read off in that paragraph, they're not. They need to be protected and defended and sacrificed for. And the things that make this country exceptional, you know, it's not bloodline, it's not, you know, soil, it's our ideas. It's our ideas. And when those ideas are under siege, and they are very much under siege now um, from from lots of different directions, then America gets pulled back into the mean of history. And I think that's what we're living through um, right now. I think that, you know, nothing less than those ideals that make us um, exceptional are are under attack. And, you know, I, I think back to this summer and, you know, lots of statues were pulled down. Some of, some of people that, you know, maybe deserve to be pulled down like Confederate generals, but among them were people like our first founding fathers, like Abraham Lincoln, and our second founding fathers, like Frederick Douglass. And you didn't hear a lot of people that are supposed to be our intellectual and moral betters, you know, our elites offering a full-throated condemnation of that. And that's a problem. Like I, I see a, d- a direct connection between um, the vandals that pulled down Lincoln and the vandals that stormed the Capitol. Like both groups of those mm. people do not love what is good about America. Um, and I, I, I'm worried about, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm really worried about where we are. Um, mm-hmm. and I just think that, you know, it's, it's, we, we, you know, we, we've seen other countries sort of torn apart by the dislocations of the 21st century. And it's hard to imagine that we would be one of them. And yet, you know, anyone that studies history sees that, you know, nothing lasts and we're, we're so young. And of course it's possible for things to come apart. That's why I think it is, you know, all of us that love what this country is at its very best, even with its flaws, are obligated um, to to defend the things that you know the vandals are trying to to tear down. Right, the vandals beyond beyond the statues, they're they're trying to tear down a lot of things that we care about. You you try to you toy around with the name, you know, because I do think some of us have been struggling to define, forgive the rhetoric, but the enemy. Um, you know, like what. What is this force against which we're fighting? You know, mm-hmm. I'll get out there and I'll talk about some of these absurdities that are being done to us. And I don't have a name for it. And, and you 
you've written, and I, and I quote again here, that American liberalism is under siege. There's a new ideology vying to replace it. No one has yet decided on the name for the force that has come to unseat liberalism. Some say it's social justice. The writer Wesley Yang refers to it as the successor ideology, as in the successor to liberalism. At some point, it will have a formal name, one that properly describes its mixture of postmodernism, postcolonialism, identity politics, neo-Marxism, critical race theory, intersectionality, and the therapeutic mentality. Until then, it's up to each of us to see it plainly, look past the hashtags and the slogans and the jargon to assess it honestly, and then explain it to others. And that's the, that's the challenge, right? To get our arms around what are, because it's like, if you vote, like, I, I can't stand critical race theory. I can't believe that this thing is making its way into corporate America and into the schools of America and that the, the shaming of people based on pigmentation has now become acceptable. And if you think it's okay, just because the people who are being shamed are whites, you haven't studied history to see how that pendulum swings back, right? Like that, this is not going to end well if we continue going down this route. It's creating more racism which is what I hate so much about it. It's totally anti the MLK dream, which they're open about. I mean, the people pushing this stuff don't believe in the MLK theory. They, they don't believe, they think if you're after content of character instead of color of skin, that's your racism talking. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you focus in on that, right, the response from the, the sort of the radical left is you're a racist. <laughs> like what you're trying to avoid is an education on the history of racism in America and how to combat it. You know, you need to read more Robin D'Angelo. And I yeah. think you and I can look at them and say, you're insane. Robin D'Angelo's book is racist. Her theory is racist. I'm fighting against racism. I don't believe we have the same goal. Get rid of racism if we can, or at least eliminate it in the pockets in which it still exists or work, to, work toward it. But we have a very different approach and very different, very deep disagreement on the methods. That kind of talk, that kind of language is not available to most people. They don't even understand that that's, that's the argument we're having. That's what's been so genius about this movement is that it frames itself as social justice, as the new civil rights movement, as anti-racism. Who wouldn't want to sign up for those things? But in reality, it is cynical. It is intolerant. um, It is neo-racist. It is neo-racist. The idea that some people are born into original sin or collective guilt because of their skin color and that other people have more claim to morality and truth because of theirs, um, I don't want to live in a world that believes that. I don't want to live in a country that accepts that as normal. Um, And one of the things that I think is so important is, you know, we've lived through the past few years, you know, we've seen just such a degradation of language and such a coarsening of language. And I think one of the things that's very important is for us to reclaim the language. Um, Mm -hmm. And That's certainly the case when it comes to critical race theory. Um, Again, do you believe um, in equality under the law? Do you believe that we should strive to live in a world where color doesn't matter? Um, Do you believe that, you know, the world is complicated and people should not be slotted into, you know, two categories, you know, victim and victimizer, oppressor and oppressed? And do you think that anyone that thinks the opposite of that is embracing something illiberal, intolerant and dangerous? You know, it's we have to do a better job of explaining it. And while there are people out there that are, you know, again, like it is hard to explain it because these are ideas that, you know, are quite can be quite jargony, come from um, the fringes of the academy, 
um, you know, post-structuralism, like we don't have to go into all of it, but I, I know why it's hard for people um, to explain it, even though they're trying to, to do a good job. And I think, frankly, it's the job of people like me and you um, to, to, to sound the alarm on it even more than we already are. No, we have to, we have to take it a, a step larger because it's, it's so much bigger than just media, than just K through 12, than just college. It's, it's cultural and it's institutional and it's growing. And it's my biggest concern about Joe Biden's presidency and control now by the Democrats of the House and the Senate, because while I do think he's probably more moderate in his policies than, you know, we, we could have gotten, um, He's already shown a willingness to tip the hat to this. We heard some of it in his inaugural address. And um, unless people find their spine and and find the courage to speak out against what is neo-racism, we're going to get a whole lot more of it. Back to Barry in just one second. But first, sticking to your New Year's resolution is a matter of making one right decision at a time. You know, I always have trouble with my New Year's resolutions, don't you? It's like, I don't know if I should do them. And we're trying to like do less TV, less technology in our family. Um, but old habits die hard, right? But we're doing well. We're doing okay. So if you're also looking to institute some healthy habits and improve your lifestyle this year, check out Super Beats Heart Shoes. This is an easy, enjoyable, delicious way to improve your health. They really are tasty and they're kind of I want to say they fill you up, but they do. Like when you're having those hunger pangs, they'll kind of hold you over a little bit, I've noticed. Just su- just two of these Super Beats Heart Chews per day will give you the cardiovascular support and that you need. And they'll also promote the heart-healthy energy you need to chase your goals. Super Beats Heart Chews combine non-GMO beets and clinically researched grapeseed extract shown to be two times as effective at supporting normal blood pressure than a healthy lifestyle alone. When it comes to implementing healthy habits this year, go ahead and add Super Beats Heart Shoes to your daily routine as an easy decision to make that's good for you and delicious. And now you can get a free 30-day supply of Super Beats Heart Shoes plus a free 30-day supply of their new delicious flavor, Super Grapes. Even sounds good. Super Beats doesn't sound good, right? Beats, but they are. Super Grapes sounds delicious and is is as well. Um, So you'll get that with your first purchase by going to GetSuperBeats.com slash MK. That's two free gifts valued at over 50 bucks. Only available at GetSuperBeats.com slash MK. That's GetSuperBeats.com slash MK. And now it's time in the program for something we call Real Talk, where we just kick around something that happened in the news this week. And today I'm thinking about what happened at the inauguration, Just, just watching the inauguration. I sent out a tweet um, moments after it happened, and I watched it, saying, there will be time for analyzing tomorrow. Today, I feel deep love for our country, and am praying for President Biden, Vice President Harris, and for all of us as we navigate what's, what comes next. And that really is how I felt. I always feel very patriotic when I watch the inaugurations, um, whether I voted for the guy or the gal or not. And that's how I felt when I watched Biden and Harris take the oaths of office. I just, it makes you love America. It makes you grateful to live here. Uh, And it was a peaceful transition of power. I realized Trump didn't go, but it was utterly peaceful. In fact, I mean, of course, it was locked down. You know, it it felt peaceful. And there was not this widespread outbreak of violence from city to city and state capitals, as some had feared and predicted. It was a lovely day. And also, I do think it's amazing that you know, seeing a woman of color assume the vice presidency was very cool. We've never had a woman in the, in the White House in the top or second job yet. 
um, never mind a woman of color. So it's it's great. Those those barriers are good. They're good for little girls to see, little boys and and girls um, of all of all colors and backgrounds. Um, you know, they do say if you can see it, you can be it. So there's something to it. Anyway, the the bottom line is, Biden's speech was very good. It was also <laughs> a little what's the word hypocritical is as he called for unity in the best terms he possibly could. He was stoking some of the race wars again. And, you know, his team is behind the scenes making lists of who they're going to punish from the Trump administration as they proceed with an impeachment against the guys, even though he's left office. It's not the most uniting plan. It's a little bit more divisive. And I actually think that um, unity is not possible. It's, it's not. We can lower the temperature. We can be a little kinder to each other. But we're going to fight. Uh, the two sides don't agree. And I'm not even talking about things like granting a path to citizenship for 11 million people who are here and undocumented. I'm talking about this culture war that we've been talking about on this show uh, today and on other days. So that, you know, it's, we're talking about the very heart of how we live, how we can talk to each other. Do we shame one another and our children day after day in schools and elsewhere? M- must everyone bend the knee? to one small group or another who tells us how we must feel, how we must talk, how we, how we must be. No, we mustn't. That's not a requirement. And the more you try to shame half the country for not doing exactly what you want them to do and being exactly who you want them to be, the more divided we're going to get. So until Biden starts talking about that and living that, it's not going to be a united country. Uh, I, I do have hopes for lowered temperature. Uh, less incendiary rhetoric, less personal attacks. The the thin-skinned nature of President Trump was not good for the country. Um, And so it's nice to have somebody who has proven an ability to keep quiet and stay out of the fray, you know, from time to time. I think that might come as a refreshing change. We'll see. Let's stay open-minded. But unity on the things that matter, don't count on it. Back to Barry. One of the things that seems to rise with this, you know, triple down on what they call anti-racism for some reason seems to be anti-Semitism. Like Mm -hmm. why? Why has discrimination, bias toward even hatred toward Jewish people risen to the extent I feel it has? I think you feel it has in the past, let's say, 10 years. You see it everywhere and it's given an open pass. Yeah. Oh, my God. This is I could talk about this for hours. Look, I think that any caste system, so so let me put it this way. I'll I'll kind of do a 10,000 foot view and then I'll I'll try and drill down to your question. In the anti-Semitic conspiracy theory, and that is what it is, it is a conspiracy theory. The Jews or Jews or the Jewish state comes to stand for whatever a given culture or civilization defines as its most loathsome or disgusting qualities. Okay, and that's how under that's how the Jews can be so many things at once. It's how under Nazism, the Jews become the race contaminators, how under communism, we are the bourgeois arch capitalists. Um, I could go on through history, but you get the drift Mm -hmm. right now. The Jews are in a very precarious and strange position because you have the accusation that comes from the far right, from people like the um, the killer in who who stormed into my synagogue in Pittsburgh 2 years ago and he said you know all Jews must die and and he killed 11 of my neighbors and he was driven by i think what is just very archetypal view of Jews from the far right and it goes like this 
Jews, at least American Jews, are overwhelmingly of Eastern European descent. They're Ashkenazi. They appear to be white. And yet, they're in fact, and this is that the language of this disgusting view, not mine, in fact, they are loyal, slavishly loyal to black people and brown people and Muslims and immigrants. And so in a way, they're the greatest trick the devil has ever played. So the Jews are sort of fake white people. So when you hear in Charlottesville, Jews will not replace us, what they mean is not you know, Jews are going to take my place in the corner office. They mean the Jews are the secret hand opening the borders to all of these people who will replace uh, white America. So that's the knock against us on the far right. And on the far left, it's kind of a mirror image. What the far left says is um, the Jews claim to be a minority. They say that they're oppressed, and by every measure, um, the greatest number of hate crimes every year in this country are carried out against Jews, even though we're less than 2% of the population. So mm -hmm. they claim to be a minority. They say they're oppressed, but hold on. They're white. They're white passing. They're white adjacent. More than that, they support Israel, which is the last standing bastion of white colonialism in the Middle East. So in fact, not only are they not a minority and not oppressed, they're handmaidens to white supremacy. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm, so yeah. that's what's happening on both scores. To drill down a little bit more on what's happening on the left, the left, the far left, not the liberal left, the far left, the, the left that talks a lot about um, intersectionality and critical race theory, they are suggesting essentially that we flip the caste system that has existed in Western civilization up until five minutes ago, rather than get fight to get rid of the caste system. So if the if the old caste system had, you know, Brad Pitt and John Hamm at the top and at the very bottom, you know, a black woman who had some kind of disability, let's say, they're saying, let's flip that. So now let's put the Brad Pitts of the world at the very bottom and those with the most sort of um, victim status at the very top. Well, in that new rubric, American Jews who have, you know, outsized success compared to our numbers, um, they're something like, you know, just above the Brad Pitts of the world. And so if you look at the world that way, um, our oppression, our um, the physical attacks that are taking place almost every single day against visible Jews in neighborhoods of Brooklyn, like Crown Heights and Borough Park, um, they don't rank. And so that's mm. one of the things that is so dangerous um, about this moment is that, you know, if you see the entire world only in terms of one lens, and that lens is black and white, that lens is color, well, you're going to overlook, um, you're going to overlook hatred against Jews. They don't rank. That's so well said. I get it now. I it's that... Jews don't count, right? If someone said about another to another editor at the New York Times, are you writing about the, the, the blacks again? Are you writing about the trans again? Are you writing about the gays again? Think about mm -hmm. how that sounds to your ear. It's disgusting. And yet something it's acceptable to say about Jews. And the same thing goes with, you know, you know, I, I find it just unbelievably striking that we ran an op-ed by um Tom Cotton, that essentially the paper, only, you know, basically rescinded. They, they ran like an 800 word editor's note at the top apologizing for running it. And yet the paper 
ran not one but two puff pieces about Alice Walker, who is a vile anti-Semite who writes poems about the blood libel. Neither puff piece mentioned anything about her Jew hatred. And when I complained internally over the course, you know, more, more and more passionate notes, um, I was told that, you know, she was a literary elder and we had already run run the piece and, you know, they wouldn't be appending any correction or editor's note. I actually didn't know that myself about Alice Walker, who, you know, our audience probably knows that she wrote The, the Color Purple, among other books. Um, yeah. She did one of those, like, I've done one of these for the Times where they do like, I don't know, your 10 favorite books or 20 questions on books. And and can you just explain, because I had to look it up. I wasn't familiar with the author or the, or the poem that she was praising. Which, and she doubled down on it, well, even when it was pointed out to her, hey, you know, you, do you want to back off of this? And she was like, nope. Can you just tell our audience what we're talking about? Yeah. So Alice Walker um, wrote The Color Purple, which a lot of people love. Um, but she is, um, she is an acolyte of David Icke, um, who is, you know, a a conspiracy theorist that I think has been banned from YouTube. He's an anti-vaxxer. He lives in England and he believes in the lizard Illuminati. Um, oh I'm not exaggerating. He believes that there's like a secret cabal of lizard people that control the world. And by the way, a lot of good of people, a lot of good people believe in that. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell? Most of the lizard surnames are like Rosenberg and Rothschild. And oh, so this is what Alice Walker, um, believes. And, uh, a lot of people don't know this. Now, you would think that a place like the New York Times would take the time to to look into it, but um, but they didn't. And when it was raised, they decided not to do anything about it. Um, and you know, people can go. I don't want to quote it because it's really despicable. But people can go on Alice Walker's re- website and read her poetry about you know the rabbis of the Talmud drinking the blood. I mean, it's 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 as out there as you can possibly get. Actually, maybe I will quote it. This is it. Are the Goyim, meaning the non-Jews, us meant to be slaves of Jews? And not only that, but to enjoy it. Um, follow the, I mean, whatever. It's it's crazy. Uh, I did look up some of, I, I looked up some of it and I, I was like, there's no way. No, come on. This is Oprah's Alice Walker. This is Oprah's, know. you know, this is her North Star. Um, no, but so that's fine. That's fine by the times. And then Tom Cotton thing. I mean, we, let's just round back to that before we sure. uh, continue, because I think our viewers probably, our listeners probably know what we're talking about. But over the summer and the unrest, Tom Cotton wrote, wrote an op-ed. The title of it by the Times was Send in the Troops. And he was talking about, should we have the military in the streets, uh, advocating that we should, in the wake of the George Floyd protests and the rioting and so on and so forth. And there were complaints inside the Times that this this put, the, the quote was on June 3rd, 2020, uh, running this, this is a tweet by a Times employee, running this puts black at NYT staff in danger. Now, this is the same magazine that earlier had run an op-ed from a member of the Taliban. Okay. From the member of the Taliban, who's who they didn't even highlight or disclose the history of involvement in terrorist activities by the guy. But nobody, nobody had a problem with that at the times. But Tom Cotton, um, you know, sending out the, uh, sending the troops, right, to maintain order was a problem. Today, you know, in in leading up to the inauguration, we're seeing that same paper calling for the troops to be out there to protect America in response to the threat of right wing violence. And it's just another example of their hypocrisy and just how thin skinned they are in their their total absence of commitment to principle. Like 
Why shouldn't Tom Cotton be able to say that? Why did your editor, James Bennett, have to resign three days after he allowed it to be published? I think, and there's been so many examples of this happening, that it's like a, it's like a moral panic. It's like a frenzy. And um, there needs to be some kind of um, scapegoat uh, for the people that are in the frenzy in order to quell it. Now, of course, that the scapegoat doesn't actually quell it. It just staves it off for the next time, as we've seen in case after case after case. Um, but I felt like, you know, in a normal non-upside-down world, I felt like the response on the part of any publisher in the case of journalists claiming that an op-ed um, by a senator put their lives in danger would be, you know, I respect that you have this position. Perhaps working in a newspaper is not the right career path for you. Right. Um, but instead, it was, I mean, it what happened in the wake of that was like really unbelievable. I mean, it was like a struggle session with people crying, with, you know, the people oh that tweeted God. that being praised by the masthead for their moral clarity and their courage. Um, it was quite a spectacle. At some point, probably I will write about it. But I think, you know, now that people are less, now that people have sobered up, I think increasing numbers of people are seeing how, ridiculous that all was, how um, unjust. Uh, and, and the, I mean, not, it wasn't just James Bennett. I mean, the, the, one of the editors of the piece, a 25 year old uh, was thrown under the bus and named by his colleagues and his name ran in the news side of the paper. Again, mm -hmm. to go back to the double standard, um, Listeners might recall when the New York Times ran a deeply anti-Semitic cartoon featuring the Israeli prime minister um, as a as a as a dog with a mm, I remember this Jewish star around his collar leading a blind Donald Trump wearing a yarmulke or a kippah on his head. Now, I know who who chose that op-ed or sorry who chose that cartoon, um, but it would be totally unprofessional and uncollegial and wrong for someone to leak that name. And of course, it's never been leaked and I hope it never will. Um, and yet it took, you know, a day for them to throw a 25-year-old, very junior editor who was only one of people that, one of the people that had a hand in, in running the Tom Cotton op-ed under the bus. And, you know, he's no longer at the paper. So or Adam Rubenstein. Exactly. 25 years old. He's recently out as well. But again, there's no amount of wokeness for the woke. It's, it's like, that's not good enough. I think the thing to emphasize for people is, you know, this is now like, what I like to say to people is like, the New York Times is not the New York Times. Harvard is not Harvard. You know, go down the list. Like, it still has the same, Harvard still has the same slogan and the same crest. The New York Times still has, you know, the font and, you know, the claim to be the paper of record. But what it actually is has changed and it's changed dramatically. And try and look beyond the font to see that. The New York Times is now a place where people are fired for running an op-ed by a conservative Republican. And yet pieces that are out and out, you know, propaganda from the Chinese Communist Party um, are acceptable. Mm -hmm. 
picking up on our on our anti-Semitism discussion. I mean, this is the same. These are the same people who, you know, Vogue, Vogue put the one of the heads of um, the women's the March for Women's Lives, Tamika Mallory, uh, on the on the pages of Vogue magazine, even though she's an open anti-Semite. Yes, that's right. Not to mention Chelsea Handler. Right. Chelsea Handler's tweeting out Louis Farrakhan sound bites without apology. She doesn't care. It was called to her attention. Hey, you know, he said some really bad things like Jews or termites. Eh, he said a good thing in this soundbite. Right. I think what it is, is that all of us, there's a consensus about what is unacceptable when it comes to. And again, these categories don't mean that much anymore. But what is what? It, what are the limits, let's say, of reason, acceptability when it comes to the right. You can't find a person other than a cult member who would possibly defend, you know, the storming of the Capitol by rioters. Like everyone sees that with perfect clarity. And yet there seems to be almost no limit on the left. Um, You know, you had Puff Daddy or P. Diddy hosting Louis Farrakhan to, to give a July 4th day address on Revolt TV, which is the TV station he owns. I mean, talk about transphobic, homophobic, Jew-hating, and not to mention anti-vaxxer. That's Louis Farrakhan. And yet somehow, like, that doesn't justify outrage. That doesn't justify headlines. And I think we need to ask ourselves why. Now, what do you make of, like, the I, I actually I, I must I should have been paying more attention because I didn't know that Glenn Greenwald has been one of your critics. I was like, Glenn and Barry, I love them. But he's been he's he's come after you. Um, mm-hmm. And he's basically like, oh, she's a cancel culture person when it comes to he doesn't think it's anti-Semitism. He would say it's it's more people who are more aligned with the Palestinian viewpoint or who are going to question the narratives on Israel. Forget. I mean, I, I don't think he'd defend Louis Farrakhan's views, but. What what about that? Like his charge that you're pushing cancel culture that you have in your past on people who push back on the pro-Israel, anti-Palestinian narrative. Yeah, I guess what I would say to that, and you know, we're living in a really interesting moment where I find myself, you know, on the same side as someone like Glenn Greenwald um, on I think one of the most important debates of the moment, which is liberty. You know, which is which is free speech and freedom of the press and the right not to be censored by big tech. And so, you know, we've sort of like had a bunch of private conversations about that realignment. So I I should say that from the start. Um, I think people can, you know, my record has been poured over, (laughs) not least by Glenn Greenwald. Um, And I think what people will see is that, you know, I'm not someone that argues that there aren't limits that there aren't things that ought to be taboos. You know, Mm -hmm. I think a professor that says to a student, as happened at Columbia, that you're not a real Semite because you have green eyes or that, you know, the skeletal vertebrae of Israeli Jews um, has been, uh, I could find the exact quote, have been maimed because of their oppression of Palestinians. Like those are things that are unacceptable. And so (laughs) That's what I was calling out as a student. And by the way, I wasn't saying fire the professor. I was saying like in the same way that we would expect if a college had a professor that was saying, I miss the Jim Crow South, like that should be cause for outrage. And again, to me, it kind of goes back to the Jews don't count thing. 
you know, there ought to be certain taboos. Um, I've never someone that's argued for there being none of them. And if you look at my record and you look at the kinds of things that I was criticizing, I don't think any sane person could look at them and say that they were um, within the realm of reasonable debate. Right. Now, Len and I differ passionately on the question of whether anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. Um, and I would simply say to that question that, you know, to be an anti-Zionist, which is, you know, to not believe in the, the right of the Jewish people to have a state like any other state, to have that debate, you know, in 1910 Poland, where Jews were horrifically oppressed, the Holocaust, you know, had not yet come, but there were pogroms constantly. And there was a debate inside the Jewish world about how could we solve the Jewish question? How could we live freely without being oppressed? And there were lots of different answers to that question. Some people answered assimilation. Some people answered, you know, a worldwide um, workers of the world unite. Some people answered socialism. Some people answered Zionism. Now, to have to be an anti-Zionist in that context before the state of Israel came into existence, before it became, as it is today, the place of the largest Jewish community on planet Earth, surrounded by hostile neighbors, that is one thing. That's in a totally different moral universe. To argue today against a state that exists um, and to suggest that it should simply go away. Um, and, and again, I would ask people to really drill down into what that means. Um, I think that that is anti-Jewish in effect, if not in intent. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I think that, you know, maybe Glenn and I can have a longer conversation about that, but that's, that's absolutely where I fall on that question. That's well explained. I feel like it's my brother and my sister arguing. I don't like it. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm glad you're at a place where you're talking. Yeah. Um, let's talk about something else you just mentioned, which is big tech. What, what was the name? Forgive me for not knowing it. I hope you know it off the top of your head. No, no worries. If not, what is the name of the writer who wrote the beautiful tablet magazine piece about flatness? You tweeted it out. What is, what is her name? Her name. And I'm so excited to talk about this is Alana Newhouse. She's, I call her, you know, there's a few people that I call my senseis. One is Caitlin Flanagan and one is Alana Newhouse. She was my boss when I was at tablet. She hired me away from the wall street journal um, and she's been the editor of Tablet. She rarely writes. And so it was a, a big deal that that she wrote that piece. And it was it's called, for those who have read it, um, Everything is Broken. Holy shit, was that amazing. That that piece, it's rare that I'll like print it out, sit and read it. And then as soon as I read it, I gave it to Doug. I'm like, you have to read this, read the whole thing. And of course, my copy was underlined and highlighted. She writes in the piece, flatness broke everything. And she is essentially, she's talking about a lot about some of the stuff we're discussing about big tech. And that's kind of where I want to go with this. She talks about how the internet tycoons used flatness to hoover up the value from local businesses, national retailers, the whole newspaper industry, and that no one seems to care. And, you know, that there was a heist, that there was a heist pulled off without any pushback which she says is tied to what we're talking about, that it enabled progressive activists, she says, to pull off a heist of their own. They, they seized on the fact that the whole world had adapted to a world of practical flatness in order to push their political flatness, what they call social justice, but which has historically, quoting, meant the transfer of enormous amounts of power and wealth 
to a select few. So much in there. And I want to go over more in this piece too, but that they're related. This the the behemoth of big tech taking over our lives, disconnecting us, ironically, and enabling this takeover of the social justice warriors to to change the power structure, but not in a way that's that leads to quote equality. And in fact, what they want is power and wealth to a select few. I think what's brilliant um, about this essay and a connection I had never made is the line she draws between the aesthetics of sort of the world that we live in now, the world of, you know, Uber and Seamless and DoorDash and Airbnb and, you know, a coffee shop that's in the cool part of Amsterdam looks exactly the same as a coffee shop in the cool part of San Francisco. That aesthetic of sameness that she connects to a politics of sameness and a purity. Um, I think it's, I think it's an unbelievable insight that I had never thought of before. Um, and it, it really tracks, like when you think about what this movement demands, which is conformity, which is, which suggests that anything less that to- than total equality of outcome is, is evidence of nefariousness or of systemic oppression or discrimination. Um, I think, I think she nailed it with that. I really do. She talks about, um, to, I want to read just a couple of excerpts, but here's the first one talking about the killing of spirit that all of this has led to. Academic institutions have now been repurposed to instill and enforce the narrow and rigid agenda of one cohort of people, forbidding exploration or deviation, a regime that has ironically left homeless many, if not most, of the country's best thinkers and creators. Anyone actually concerned with solving deep-rooted social and economic problems, or God forbid, with creating something unique or beautiful, a process that is inevitably messy and often involves exploring heresies and making mistakes, will hit a wall. If they're young and remotely ambitious, they'll simply snuff out that part of themselves early on, strangling the voice that they know will get them in trouble before they've ever had the chance to really hear it sing. She's the most amazing. <laughs> it brings a tear to my eye. It it that's what's happening. It is it is snuffing out voices before they've ever had the chance to really hear them sing. And it's starting in I'm trying to swear less because a lot of my viewers want, but I'm sorry, it's starting in fucking kindergarten. It makes it makes me angry. This is the work of our lifetimes. Like I say that both to to emphasize how serious the work is, but also um, I hope what's coming through and and I hope people understand that my leaving the paper um, is a sign of, of hope. In other words, I left because I really believe that fighting this um, is, and, and building spaces and institutions and new media and new publishing houses, new, new studios, new things, like is the work of our lifetime. And if we've lived, if we've sort of living now at what I think a lot of us now see as a kind of great unraveling, um, which is the phrase that Commentary Magazine has used a few times that I think is really, really apt, what lies ahead of us, I think, is the great building, the great rebuilding. And I think Mm -hmm. what's scary for people is to see that a lot of the institutions that we thought of as tankers have really been rotted out. And that's really scary. And I get people that are scared, but I would emphasize like, don't let that paralyze you. Um, 
people came here from the old world and built everything anew, including the constitution itself. If you're telling me that, you know, we can't build new newspapers and and new universities and new school systems, like I would simply say to you, you're not dreaming big enough. And yes. that's that's what I'm about. And, you know, present company, you know, myself, I would say excluded. I do think that the, that Alana is right, that that so many of the most interesting heterodox voices, the voices that, you know, the people with jagged edges, and I mean that as a compliment, the people that yeah. refuse to kind of be smoothed down um, to, to become a widget, they're the people that have either been expelled from the legacy institutions or have sort of preemptively self-deported, which is how I think of myself, um, mm -hmm. because we didn't want to become that. And nothing was worth that price. Yes. And I love my jagged edges. I love the way you put it. I love them. I don't want them smoothed out. No, thank you. Yeah. I just, I, I think like, you know, that was, that's what's so special about um, what's possible in this country at its best. I mean, and, and I think that's, that's the work that lies ahead. And I, I think it's, I think it's really intimidating to a lot of people. Um, but, but I think that, that, that is what it is and seeing it with clarity um, and seeing the old world and the way that it's rotted out with clarity is really important. I think the moment that we're in, in it right now, um, and I, I, I talk to a lot of people that are sort of living in this liminal space, is that they see that the old world, the old institutions are hollowed out almost entirely. Uh, they want to step out of the old world, but the new world doesn't yet exist. It hasn't yet right. been built. And what exists right. right now, and we're talking on, you know, the pirate radio, um, what exists right <laughs> now is kind of like Wild West situation. There's some newsletters, there's some podcasts, um, there's a lot of private signal groups where people share their actual views, but there isn't a whole world where you can live and work and meet your spouse and build a life. Um, there's pockets, um, there's things that are emerging, there's places that are emerging, um, but I, I think that you know that's certainly what what I want to be focused on on being a part of is is building that new that new world. I love that. And and it's it's a great way of thinking about it because we can we can draw our swords rhetorically speaking and fight fight in the old world, fight to preserve what's there already, the America that we knew that people are going to have to live in for the foreseeable future, push back against some of the nonsense being shoved down our throats while creating this new world, while while creating something better, the place to which we want to go. Um and that's like, I hadn't even really thought about it that way. I mean, I, I, I think people have been thinking about it in the, a little bit more in the wake of Twitter, you know, canceling Trump and Parler being pulled off the Internet. Like we need whole new lanes of travel um, yes. in many different departments. But it, she, Alana, gets to this, too. And I this is the last thing I'm going to read from her because it really is beautiful. You have to introduce me to this woman. I will. She says, right. She's amazing. Uh, she writes. The vast majority of Americans are not ideologues. They are people who wish to live in a free country and get along with their neighbors while engaging in profitable work, getting married, and other cultural products. Every time Americans are given the option to ratify progressive dictates through their consumer choices, they vote in the opposite direction. When HBO removed Gone with the Wind from its on-demand library last year, it became the number one best-selling movie on Amazon. Meanwhile, <laughs> 
endless numbers of Hollywood right think movies, you know, quote unquote, right, the right, not conservative, right? And supposed literary masterworks about oppression are dismal failures for these studios and publishing houses that would rather sink into debt than face a social justice firing squad on Twitter. I mean, this is the last part. Mm-hmm. All of this has created a generational opportunity. Build new things, create great art, understand and accept that sensory information is the brain's food and that Silicon Valley is systemically starving us of it. Avoid going entirely tree blind, make a friend and don't talk politics with them. Do things that generate love and attention from three people you actually know instead of hundreds you don't. Abandon the blighted Ivy League, please. I beg of you. Start a publishing house that puts out books that anger, surprise, and delight people and which make them want to read. Be brave enough to make film and TV that appeals to actual audiences and not 14 people on Twitter. Oh, Don't you love it? Yes. Preach. It's just on the money. I mean, there are tens of millions of Americans who feel that the world has gone mad, or at least, you know, the gatekeeping institutional world. You know, they see that identity trumps ideas. They see that science is at the mercy of politics. They see that obvious truths are dangerous to say out loud. And what is shocking is the amount of money that is being left on the table by condescending or ignoring or or preaching to those people. Meaning, I think Joe Rogan gets an average of like 6 million viewers an episode. And Mm -hmm. the average nightly viewership of CNN is like maybe less than 2 million. We have to check my numbers, but I I remember that from a few months ago. That's about right. Right now they're surging because of Biden, but they'll go back down. Right. And so isn't that an indicator for people? Like people are interested in, first of all, Americans are smart. They're interested in deep, long, sophisticated conversations um, about all kinds of things. They're hungry for it and they're seeking it out. And if the legacy institutions don't want to provide it for people, great. I want to be opportunity. Yeah. Like I I think that there's, as Alana says, there's, there's a huge, huge opportunity there. Well, can I tell you, like a part of this is that I actually didn't know that about when HBO removed Gone with the Wind uh, from the online library. It became number one. You know what another great example is, Megan, is Andy Hmm. Ngo's book was last I haven't read his book, but his book was number one on all of Amazon. He's an expert on and Antifa and has been writing a lot about it. And uh, not surprisingly, that group hates him and tried to get his book banned. And, and it had the opposite effect. Right. But, you know, that book will never be reviewed by The New York Times. Um, Abigail Schreier's book. I know you she's a friend. I know you had her on the podcast recently. Another excellent example of this. Um, people are seeking it out. I think one of the things, though, like if we're living right now in the initial stage of sort of the challenger to the mainstream, uh, which is little independent um, influential influential people um, like you or, you know, there's like Glenn, like Matt Taibbi. um, It's wonderful. It's a great first step. But if we really look at what changes the culture, it's institutions and Mm -hmm. bringing together, you know, I think it's unreasonable to ask 
you know, the dentist in Cleveland or the accountant in Pittsburgh to spend $150 subscribing to 15 newsletters and podcasts. We need to find a way um, to consolidate the people that that are trustworthy, that are of no party or clique. Well, look at Fox News. Look at Roger Ailes idea, you know, that people scoffed at him. He, at Fox News on the walls, they used to have the articles framed of, you know, all the predictions of doom for the channel when he launched it. And whatever you think of Fox News, it's a behemoth. I mean, that they net a couple billion dollars a year in profit. All right. They net that. So they, he saw a niche that wasn't being served and he exploited it to the, to the great benefit of the Murdochs. And I do think overall the country, it's a, I, you know, people have their criticisms and I get that and I, I have my own. But overall, Fox News, I think, has been an enormously good force because half the country felt totally unrepresented. At least they have Fox. But now the battle's moving to a new front. It, it doesn't have to be harshly partisan one way or the other. And it's really not even about partisanship. This is something that's going to unite people on both sides of the political aisle, platforms, places mm-hmm. to go and get information, places to be educated, to find open-minded people. All of the things we discussed in your article and that you wrote about, about liberalism, that you know, sort of small L liberalism that was always characteristic of America. And it's going to take money, but we have a lot of people on our side. I mean, I, I know you do too. Like you get contacted by people with a bunch of money who want to help fund some group to fight back. Me too. And so like, that's where it begins. I agree. I think one of the things that is, that I've been thinking pretty deeply about is that it feels to me right now in the country, like there are two very, very powerful magnets. And one magnet is sort of the populist right. And if you build something, let's say in the, in the space of center right to, to anything to the right of that, it gets pulled by that magnet. Likewise, on the left, it feels like the magnet of whatever we want to call it, let's call it wokeness or, you know, exclusionary identity politics is so powerful that anything that gets built in the center left or the liberal space gets pulled by that. And so I think the question that stands before anyone that wants to be making new things and building new institutions is, is it possible to build something that is anchored by something that is different? Mm. That right. doesn't get yanked to one of those extremes. I think the person or the group of people that can figure that out um, will build something hugely successful and will draw, you know, tens of millions of Americans that are that are thirsty for the, for the, for for the truth. Right, and that adhere to the original American ideals. You know, I mean, they believe what this country was founded on, and as Glenn Beck was pr- pointing out recently on our show. The goal is never to have a perfect union. It was a more perfect, more perfect. We can get there and we don't have to change all of our ideals and our history to do it. We can actually just embrace them and double and triple down. Um, and just a quick word, because one of the one of the dangers in going this route, right, pushing back against all this stuff is you get called names, right? Mm-hmm. You, you a racist, a sexist or whatever is. We pointed out earlier, you, you defended, for example, Aziz Ansari, who'd been accused of having like a very bizarre exchange with a woman. She claimed it was a Me Too situation and you took a risk and defended him. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, so you're you're against Me Too. You're against women. You're you, it takes you have to take risks to go out there and push back where you think it's appropriate. And just hearing that thing about Gone with the Wind, I, I tweeted out against that decision as soon as it happened. So this is absurd. Um, you know, Americans for generations have been able to understand 
that slavery is terrible, notwithstanding the way it's portrayed and gone with the wind. And by the way, if we're going to go clean all of our records to get rid of bad behavior, let's try sexism. How's that going to go, HBO? Go back and take a look, scrub every movie or do do a warning in front of every movie that has women portrayed in a sexist way. Good luck. We'll wait. But but it's it's a reminder because when I tweeted that out, Sunny Hostin of The View attacked me as racist. So did like the cabal of people she tweets with. Like, what is racist about saying it's absurd to pull this movie? Right. Then when I tweeted out that there were reports Jacob Blake was in fact armed in um, Kenosha, Wisconsin. Uh, Soledad O'Brien attacked me as racist. And when I said at NBC that doing blackface wasn't always as controversial as it is now, people said that's racist. And then we saw Justin Trudeau and we saw all these celebrities and we saw the full shows on NBC had been airing blackface characters as recently as a couple of years prior to my statement. Okay. So the point is you, you may have to take some rhetorical risks. You may have to just, you know, call it like it is and brace for impact. But you're yeah. not alone. And the people trying to shame you after, out of saying what you know is true, what you mm-hmm. know is true, not unnecessarily cruel comments meant intentionally to, invite, to divide, but what you know is true and fact, reality-based, you yes. got to stand strong and know you're not alone. Yeah. Well put. I, I completely, <laughs> utterly agree. Utterly agree. And um, I just, I mean, it sounds cheesy maybe, but like people need to come out with common sense and not like you'll live one life, you know, like this is it. So like, do you want to be someone that, you know, only shares your actual views in a secret signal chat or, you know, (sighs) at dinner with your spouse or even some, you know, I had a woman call me the other day who was like, called me crying because her children are in a school like yours or yours were that was indoctrinating them. And she was alarmed and she felt like she couldn't even talk about it with her own husband. Like it's enough already. It's enough. Um, And especially for those of us who are paid um, to take risks and say unpopular things um, when we believe them to be true, like Mm -hmm. that's our job. Now we have to end it on a personal note because speaking of coming out, you're getting married. You uh, you told me this privately, and then you outed your your pending nuptials in your very first Substack column, which is where people can find you right now. Which is amazing. I mean, like you wouldn't believe the number of people who sent me your opening Substack column because they 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 didn't know I loved you. They didn't know. They just knew that I'd love what you what you had written, and they were right. Um, but you're getting married. So what's the story? And by the way, to a New York Times reporter. Oh, I love it. I mean, I, I I will always be grateful um, to the fifth floor uh, coffee room of the New York Times where <laughs> I met Millie Bowles and, you know, you and, you know, pretty much everyone I've ever met that I liked is going to be invited to the wedding because I cannot Yay. wait for this lockdown to end and have a, we like parties, have a giant party. So um, she's great. She's been just an incredible um, anchor for me. And you know, we before before the pandemic, um, we were long distance for a while. She's a mostly writes about tech, although increasingly a, a larger range of topics. And she was based in San Francisco. I was in New York. We were constantly flying back and forth. Then I was on book tour and I was on I lived out of a suitcase the past few years. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, if there's a silver lining to the pandemic and the lockdowns, it's been, you know, really um starting a home life and insanely we got a second dog. So (laughs) 
things, <laughs> things, things are, are, I'm, I'm very, very, very lucky on that front. And, um, I would say also like for anyone in public life, I think having a supportive family and a supportive partner, um, is, is essential to be able to yeah. take risks in the arena. I'm sure that you, you find that too, Megan. Oh, 100%. And I, back to Alana's piece, do things that generate love and attention from the three people you actually know, you know, that's, and, and in your Substack piece, you were, you were calling attention to the same thing. Like the, the, the people who matter in your life are generally within 25 feet of you, right? Like it's not the people on Twitter. Um, although it is the people who listen to this show, they do matter to me. Uh, I think they're part of our team, but when you can find a true love relationship that is honest and challenging and with somebody ideally who's smart and challenges you intellectually, boom, that's the nirvana. That's as close as you're going to get. I agree. I would, I agree. And and I would say that, I mean, I, I wrote this in my book um, when I was sort of advising people about how to stand up to anti-Semitism, but I didn't really appreciate it until I had to use the advice. And that advice was, you know, finding the voice of a few people that you trust um, and that will, you know, call out your bullshit, but also praise you when you do something right, that those voices really can drown out the whole mob. And that has been so true in my life, um, especially as the outside world and the online world's gotten so, so, so noisy. You know, getting a call from you know, someone like, you know, the late uh, chief rabbi of England, Jonathan Sachs, or a call from you know, the former Soviet dissident, one of my personal heroes, one of the great men of the 20th century, Natan Sharansky, telling me that they admired what I did and I was doing the right thing. Like when people ask me, how do you deal with all the people that are cruel to you? That's the answer. That and Nellie and my family. And um, having those kind of North Star people or like lighthouse people in your life. Um, and this is often advice that I give to young people who want to um, get into the arena. Um, that is that is really essential um, for maintaining sanity, for for staying grounded, and for for knowing that you're um, knowing that you're really pursuing um, your mission. Yeah, what matters? Now, am I allowed to ask you a quick question about Kate McKinnon? Because I actually didn't know that you and she had dated. You can <laughs> ask was, me. It was she. Like, because obviously politically, you're not exactly on the same page. You might have been then, but I don't know. Was that, was it a political challenge or were you on the same page politically when you were with her? You know, she's a super private person, as you can see from, from, you know, she, she sort of speaks to the world through her characters and there's, there's no one better, I would say in the world at doing that. So I would, you know, I don't want to betray her privacy in that way. But I'll just say that um, I think she's revitalized SNL and and I remain a fan and she remains a friend. Ah, well handled. I'll, I'll take it. Uh, I, <laughs> I interviewed her when I was at NBC and found her really charming and uh, hilarious, of course, needless to say, yeah. very talented. Her Hillary Clinton impressions were amazing. <laughs> amazing. All right. So on we go. Substack, that's where people can find you. They, they have to subscribe, right? You go to substack.com search for Barry Weiss. Is that? Yeah. So if you go to barryweiss.substack.com, um, you hit subscribe. And for now you get everything that I write for free. My goal now is just to um, build up an audience. And for right now, I think this is a, this was an important shingle for me to hang up and it's a good, um, it's a good position. Um, but 
I don't think I'm, you know, it, kind of going along with everything we've said in this conversation. I'm interested in in seeing what can be built in a bigger way beyond beyond one-off newsletters and beyond podcasts, even though so far this is this is going really great for me. So yes, mm-hmm. I would love if people um, would subscribe. I should have a post coming out um, either today or tomorrow. You got to subscribe. We we need to we need to help people. And and when you have to pay, please pay. It won't be something exorbitant, I'm sure. Substack usually is not. Um, but we have to support people who are trying to create this new lane. This, these are the seeds. These are the seeds being planted for what we hope will be a, a verdant garden. There you go. That's my attempt at wordsmithing. It's not exactly <laughs> chewing rubies in the mouth like what you write, <laughs> Barry, but um, thank God we have you and the Alanas of the world to help us through. So, so fun talking to you. So much luck and love. Thanks for being here. Total pleasure, Megan. I love listening to you. Today's episode was brought to you in part by Superbeat Soft Chews. Take two delicious chews a day for the health support and energy you need. Get yours now at superbeats.com slash MK. Now, listen, before you leave me, don't miss Monday's episode. I've been waiting pretty much my whole life, um, but no, seriously, I have really been looking forward to this interview. Douglas Murray will be here. If you don't know who he is, you're going to thank me. Oh, you're going to be so grateful. I I think he might be the most brilliant person alive at this moment. When he talks, you just want to sit back and listen and let him talk more and more, which is exactly what I did. Not only can he diagnose the problems in our society right now, but he has real solutions. He's the first person I've spoken to in a long time who, who has very practical solutions, language, and ways forward for those of us who want to stop this cultural nonsense. Anyway, please don't miss it. I promise you, you're going to love this interview. If I if I don't live up to that promise, you can unsubscribe and never download the show again. That's how confident and I, I am that you're going to love it. So subscribe now so you can make sure you don't miss it. Download the show, rate it five stars, review if you feel so inclined. We'd love to hear from you. And we'll talk to you on Monday. Thanks for listening to The Megan Kelly Show. No BS, no agenda and no fear. The Megan Kelly Show is a Devil May Care media production in collaboration with Red Seat Ventures. Hi, I'm Josie. My daughter turns five today. I'm also an Ohio State Highway Patrol trooper. When you move over and slow down, you're making sure I can get home to celebrate with my daughter. When you see flashing lights, remember, they're not just roadside workers. Thank you for moving over and slowing down. Life doesn't have a pause button. That's why Capella University's FlexPath learning format lets you set your own deadlines and adjust them if something comes up. Imagine how a flexible education can make a difference for you at capella.edu.